and welcome to the Vertiguys show. I'm Eric. I'm Sean. And we are the Vertiguys. We're checking out the dark side of DC. We are here to recap and review Dark Horse Comics. What the fuck? Specifically, we have some Halloween Tales of Terra for you today. What? I have here two graphic novels that I've recently purchased. Forbidden Brides of the Faceless Slaves in the Secret House of the Night of Dread Desire by Neil Gaiman and Shane Oakley. And A Study in Emerald by Neil Gaiman and Raphael Albuquerque. Yeah, so these are both originally prose stories that are collected in Gaiman's 2006 anthology, Fragile Things. These are probably among the two or three best stories in the collection, for my money. And they have both been adapted since as graphic novels. This is sort of like a, hey, Eric, read this. It is. Well, all right. I, I have no idea how we're going to sell this under the Vertigais banner, but, but I'll do it. I'm willing to go along. So we will see you when we finish reading these comics. After the break. Happy Halloween, listeners. We are back with two tales of terror. Well, they're really more macabre than terrifying. One of them is downright pleasant, honestly. <laughs> Welcome back to V103FM. We'll be spinning your favorites and providing sports news, scores, and highlights. <laughs> we're not going to do those things. Well, I understand how you could think that we're liars, since we're not covering a Vertigo comic this week. <laughs> you lied to me. <laughs> and our listeners, you made me a liar, too. <laughs> and I've made the life that you lead, Foolish, too. Yes. Um, oh, my bad. <laughs> we are going to start with Forbidden Brides of the Faceless Slaves in the Secret House in the Night of Dread Desire. The writing credit on this is for Neil Gaiman, since it's all text from his story. The art is by Shane Oakley. He's a British artist, probably best known for Albion, the Wildstorm mini he created with Alan and Leah Moore and John Repian. He also did a Sandman one-shot, A Gallery of Dreams, in 1994, and an adaptation of The Fall of the House of Usher in 2007. So, did Shane Oakley just take it upon himself to adapt this short story from Neil Gaiman as a comic book? Or was Neil Gaiman actually involved as a writer in some way beyond having written the short story? I really don't know. The fact that these are two Dark Horse comic adaptations of stories from Fragile Things make me think that there was a decision process somewhere in there to adapt multiple Neil Gaiman stories I see. into comics. So do we want to go into the plot of this one? Are we gonna are we gonna give it a full recap treatment, or do you just wanna kinda discuss it briefly? I do have notes on some of the pages, so I guess we can give it a real recap. Okay. Well, we open on a narration that tells us somewhere in the night someone was writing, and we see hands writing on a page. And the writing from that page becomes the narration on the next page. We are told that a woman is running up a tree-lined drive, and we see that she makes her way to a sort of gothic mansion. Yeah, that's right. She's running through these scary dark woods, and she doesn't really know what she's running from. She arrives on the door of this gothic mansion and knocks on the door. Yeah, she bangs on the door, and she receives the response, Who calls? Who knocks? Who calls on this night of all nights? Now, she takes this question very seriously, because she begins to give the full story of who she is. Not like, I'm in trouble, please open up. <laughs> yeah, and we find out that this is Amelia Earnshaw. She's... 
in the area because she's supposed to start as a governess for a man who is both attractive and creepy. Sort of a fixture of a gothic novel. Yeah, a very Mr. Rochester kind of character. She had a carriage, but the carriage driver just basically... He was driving kind of wild like the carriage from the end of Buster Scruggs, and then he just dumped her in the middle of the woods and took off. And she sensed a presence, and she ran from it. As she's having this conversation with the butler, we're seeing his voice come through the wall, and it almost looks like his voice is coming from the devil-shaped door knocker on the front door. The devil door knocker is a recurring motif for Neil Gaiman. We saw one in Sandman number one. Yeah, and he he correctly identifies her father and uh, says that she's an orphan, which she confirms. Right, so she is somewhat surprisingly expected at this mansion. On this night of all nights. He keeps saying that. Why do you keep saying that? On this night of all nights, you've said it three times so far. He ignores her question and leads her past the creepy fixtures into the house. Yeah, he has a good line here. There are some as are what they are, and there are some as aren't what they seem to be, and there are some as only seem to be what they seem to be. (laughs) Uh, Those last two sound the same to me, but... (laughs) Yeah. Oh, I know. And now suddenly we cut back to the writer. It's no good. It's happening again, Tombs. His butler stands waiting. He has a differently creepy butler than the one in the story. Humor creeps in. Self-parody whispers at the edge of things. I find myself guying literary convention and sending up both myself and the whole scrivening profession. Worth noting as we come into the real world of the story that it is in color. The story so far has been in black and white. Yeah. Although it remains heavily shadowed. Yeah, still goth. I believe humor is very highly thought of in certain circles, sir. That's not the point, Tombs. I'm trying to create a slice of life here, an accurate representation of the world as it is, and of the human condition. Instead, I find myself indulging as I write in schoolboy parody of the foibles of my fellows. I make little jokes. Very little. Their conversation is interrupted by an Aroo! You had better feed Aunt Agatha, Tombs. So we're, at, we're still very early in this, and we're already getting the message that what the writer considers to be, you know, kitchen sink realism yes. is to us gothic dark fantasy. Yes, he apparently lives in a gothic novel, so that's the world to him that he's trying to represent honestly. Before he picks up the pen again, we notice that the portrait of his great-grandfather on the wall behind him, the eyes have been cut out and someone is watching him through them. Yeah, (laughs) which I quite enjoyed. And then we're back in the story. The butler is explaining that they are the slaves of the master of the house and they provide him with what he craves and what he needs. Well, I think actually he goes one further. He demands what he craves and it is our duty to provide him with what he needs. (laughs) So, (laughs) so all right. There's also a mention here of the master of the house's first wife. And I loved this description. Hopelessly insane, but a mediocre harpsichord player. (laughs) Yeah, I wondered if that was supposed to be just a ridiculous thing to say, or if the joke is a little bit more nuanced than that and is also kind of winking to, like, harpsichord playing as as a staple of, you know, gothic characters. Right. You know, I think eerie harpsichord music is mm-hmm. is pretty frequently seen in these kinds of milieus. Could have been the theremin, kind of the same joke. Right. Now, it's about this point that the butler gets stabbed, right? Yeah, and it looks like there's some kind of vampire hunter or something here. Oh, yeah, this kind of... Uh, 
<laughs> yeah, he's definitely dressed like a vampire hunter. He's got scrolls sticking out of his backpack and a crossbow. He's an adventury looking lad. Yeah. Upon his death, the butler disintegrates into a pool of putrescence. Amelia dips her finger in, tastes it, and says, I would estimate that he has been dead for the better part of a hundred years. That's an interesting ability to have. The dead for a specific long time thing reminded me of that bit in Game of You with the undead baby. Oh, yeah. That's he creepy. Has, he has been dead precisely 70 years. We are now all of a sudden back in quote-unquote reality. I am endeavoring to write a novel that reflects life as it is, mirrors it down to the finest degree, and yet as I write it turns into dross and gross mockery. What should I do, eh, Ethel? What should I do? Ethel appears to be a sort of forlorn bride. Right. Possibly a maid of the house? She does say, will that be all? Now as he's staring pensively into the fire, another figure approaches, looking like David Warner wearing a Dracula cape. You! Yes, I, your elder brother, whom you thought dead these many years. But I am not dead, or perhaps I am no longer dead. <laughs> well, obviously, all this is yours, if you can prove that you are who you say you are. Proof? I need no proof. I claim birthright, and bloodright, and deathright. And then they fight with swords. Yeah, I, I like here that among the sound effects are duck and lunge and parry. <laughs> I love that part. <laughs> the writer manages to stab his older brother. I am done for. I am a dead man. Perhaps it is better this way. Truly, I did not want the house or the lands. All I wanted, I think, was peace. He has a couple of truth bombs to drop on the writer before he dies. He says that he believes that his death ends the curse on the family line. Good to know. <laughs> the second is beware the thing in the cellar. <laughs> and then he dies actually saying, Gack! As he does. <laughs> the writer calls for the butler to remove the body, but treat it well. He died to redeem himself. Perhaps to redeem us both. <laughs> That's so overwrought. <laughs> he goes into his hall of mirrors, from which all the mirrors have been removed. <laughs> but don't worry, he remembers where the mirrors were. And he's uh, talking to himself about how this is a perfectly normal thing to have happen, but if it had happened in a story, he'd feel the need to guy it unmercifully. Anyway, he gets back to writing. We are now much further into the story of Amelia Earnshaw, as an army of ghouls is trying to break into the house. Oh, somewhere in here there's a mention of the uh, wainscoting in the house, which was a nice reference for me. I always enjoy how much talk of wainscoting there is in Lovecraft. <laughs> <laughs> I see. As she is hoping that the doors will hold off the ghouls, she recalls the words of the woodcutter. As if he were standing close to her, his manly frame mere inches from her feminine curves. <laughs> the very scent of his honest laboring body surrounding her like the headiest perfume. This is starting to become a different kind of literature. I was not always in the state you see me now, lassie. Once I had another name, and a destiny unconnected to the hewing of cords of firewood from fallen trees. But know you this. In the escritoire, there is a secret compartment, or so my great-uncle claimed when he was in his cups. The escritoire! <laughs> she exclaims. <laughs> of course! 
I like here that the zombies are referred to as the ghoul lords, which sounds like a monster from Dungeons and Dragons, like a high level version of the ghoul, but I think it means that they're literally the ghouls of lords of the house. Yeah, that seems to be the case. She runs to the escritoire, gets a scroll out of it, and reads it. She becomes quite disturbed at what she reads. She knows that the zombies are about to break through, and that she would be their prey when they do, but then she shouts, Stop! I abjure you, every one of you, and thee most of all, O Prince of Carrion, in the name of the ancient compact between thy people and mine. The compact? <laughs> all the zombies together. The, the compact! <laughs> For the scroll, the long-hidden scroll, had been the compact, the dread agreement between the lords of the house and the denizens of the crypt in ages past. It had described and enumerated the nightmarish rituals that had chained them one to another over the centuries, rituals of blood and of salt and more. If you have read the compact, then you know what we need, Hubert Earnshaw's daughter. Brides. The brides! <laughs> so she promises to bring brides for all the ghoul lords. Yes, and do you think we could get her to throw in a side order of those little bread roll things? <laughs> Tears are running from the author's eye. Oh, this is intolerable. I cannot do it, and shall never do it. Now, sitting on his desk, on a bust, which at first I thought was literally a bust of Poe, but I think it's probably one of the old lords of the house, there is a raven sitting there, and he says, Before you start cursing and probably dragging peacefully dead and respectable ancestors back from their well-earned graves, just answer me one question. Do you like writing that stuff? Are you doing Matthew on purpose? Of course. <laughs> That's what ravens sound like. That life as it is stuff you do. I've looked over your shoulder sometimes. I've even read a little here and there. Do you enjoy writing it? It's literature. Real literature. Real life. The real world. It's an artist's job to show people the world they live in. We hold up mirrors. And then he kind of thinks about the question for a minute and whispers, No. Now the raven suggests writing fantasy. The writer is disgusted by this. Fantasy isn't life. Esoteric dreams written by a minority for a minority. I'm a classicist. Nevermore, says the raven. Uh, so the raven disappears, and the narration tells us, The young man shivered. He rolled the stock themes of fantasy over in his mind. Cars and stockbrokers and commuters. Housewives and police. Agony columns and commercials for soap. Income tax and cheap restaurants. Magazines and credit cards and streetlights and computers. It's escapism, true, says the author. But is not the highest impulse in mankind the urge toward freedom, the drive to escape? So he goes back to his desk, grabs the pages of his unfinished novel, and throws them in the bottom drawer. Among the yellowing maps and cryptic testaments and the documents signed in blood. And then we hard cut into kitchen sink realism. Amelia Earnshaw placed the slices of whole wheat bread in the toaster and pushed it down. She set the timer to dark brown just as George liked it. Amelia preferred her toast barely singed. I hate him, she thought, and simply putting the emotion into words surprised her. She said it again in her head. I hate him. It was like a song. George Earnshaw regarded his wife with fond affection and would have found her hatred of him astonishing. He thought of her in the same way and with the same emotions that he thought of anything that had been in the house for ten years and still worked well. That's a really good line. The television, for example, or the lawnmower. He thought it was love. The toast pops up. She notes that the toaster isn't working so well. 
Soon she'd have to buy another or start cooking toast under the grill the way her mother had done. They used the phrase under the grill in both of the comics that we're covering today. I was confused about this, so I looked it up. Of course you did. <laughs> now, according to Dr. Internet, in UK English, grilling encompasses what we call broiling, direct heat from above. When they say broiling, they mean roasting, cooking in a covered pot. So under the grill means under the broiler, which is, of course, how you use a broiler. Right. George could not for the life of him, as he told everyone in the office later that morning, understand why she simply stood there holding her slice of toast or why she started to cry. The young man continues writing, engrossed and delighted in what he's doing. Things scratched and scuttled in the wainscot, but he hardly heard them. High in her attic room, Aunt Agatha howled and yowled and rattled her chains. A weird cachination came from the ruined abbey. It rent the night air, ascending into a peal of manic glee. In the dark woods beyond the great house, shapeless figures shuffled and loped, and raven-locked young women fled from them in fear. There were faces at the windows and words written in blood. Deep in the crypt, a lonely ghoul crunched on something that might once have been alive. Forked lightnings slashed the ebony night. The faceless were walking. All was right with the world. Should I mention that after the end of the story, we get a little sketchbook here from Shane Oakley? And it is really cool to see a lot of these designs in isolation. Mm -hmm. I particularly like how he uh, relates putting so much care into the ghouls. He gave into... them all little personalities and backstories that aren't in the comic book. Yeah. So that's a fun little story. And as far as I know, the closest thing to an autobiography Neil Gaiman has ever written. <laughs> yeah, because we know that that is his life. Uh, he comes from a gothic. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> from a gothic mansion. Yeah, he's writing what he loves. He's writing fantasy. And of course, the world is bigger and weirder than we acknowledge it is. So yeah, I thought that was a nice little story. It was a cute idea how, um, you know, in this fantasy world, a fantasy novel is literature mm -hmm. and kitchen sink realism is fantasy. And I also like the little, the little kitchen sink realism story that we get. Mm, yeah. I thought that was a nice little vignette. Yeah, it's cool that he's able to work identifiably in these different genres and do a good job in them, too. Still, I'm not sure that anything else in this story lives up to its title. <laughs> I think he dropped this title just kind of at random in, in a Sandman issue as like one of the books in Lucian's library. It's just a, it's a, it's a title that he's apparently thought was cool for a while. Right. What do you think about art? Like I said, I think, I think a lot of the character designs are cool. And certainly the visuals are dramatic, mm -hmm. but the use of shadow is a bit too heavy for my taste. Okay. Um, and it was not always easy to tell what's going on. Yeah, I do kind of agree with that. It's definitely easier to follow in the color pages. Yeah, in the black and white pages, there's often just, like, specks yes. flying around for no particular reason. And I just thought, what is all that jizz? <laughs> Yeah, flecks of dust in the air or odd catches of light. It's weird and it obscures the images and it would probably look better and cleaner without. Yeah. Well, are you ready to move on to our second story? Yeah, let's do it. So this is A Study in Emerald, written by Neil Gaiman, written for comics by Raphael Albuquerque and Raphael Scavona, art by Raphael Albuquerque and Dave Stewart, colors by Dave, cover by Raphael Albuquerque. 
Now, we've talked about Raphael Albuquerque before on this podcast. He is a co-creator of American Vampire. Right. Raphael Scavona is probably best known for his work on Hit Girl. He also wrote some all-star Batman and co-created the Brazilian publisher Stout Club with Raphael Albuquerque. And Dave Stewart is a very prolific colorist, an Eisner winner. He's worked on Hellboy, Dark Horse's Conan and Star Wars comics, Joss Whedon's Fray. He's done a lot of work with Tim Sale. He colored Catwoman Win in Rome and the, the paintings for Heroes. He also colored Day Tripper, which we talked about on this podcast. Yes, I believe he is also one half of the British pop music group, The Eurythmics. <laughs> it's the same Dave Stewart? I'm almost 99% sure. <laughs> He's an incredibly talented man. <laughs> this story first appeared in the anthology Shadows Over Baker Street in 2003, which is an anthology of supernatural Sherlock Holmes stories. And hey, before we jump in, let's talk about the fact that there are ads in this comic. Fictional ads. <laughs> yes, this was one of my favorite parts about this comic book, is the fictional ads for products, all of which seem to come from noted literary, or indeed real-life, villains. My favorite one was Jack's Boots, Shoes, and Brogues. <laughs> Jack's of Piccadilly. It's all in the spring. <laughs> yeah, we'll post some stuff on Spring Heel Jack, if you don't know that one. There's also an ad for, like, Victor's Vitae, which invigorates your body like lightning. <laughs> or, or, or Professional Exsanguinations by V. Tepesh. Yeah, wasn't the, um, the Vitae, that was, like, mostly for boners, it seemed like, right? Could be. <laughs> uh, if you read it, it seems, like, pretty heavily innuendous. Oh, sure, yeah. Are the pleasures of the flesh now buried and forgot? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's fun. The text of these ads is included in the prose story, but I have to say, this is one area where it being a comic book or a or an illustrated text is much superior. Cause, yeah. Because with art, these ads are great. Chapter 1. The New Friend. Okay, so we open up on London in the 1880s. We learn that I had been in need of lodgings. That was how I met him. Our narrator is introduced to the detective. You have been in Afghanistan, I perceive. Astonishing! Not really. The detective begins and then goes on to explain how he knows that the man has served in Afghanistan, that he's tanned, and that he has an injury to his shoulder. And here, the veteran launches into a flashback about what happened in Afghanistan. And this is the first time things start to get really weird. As long as the fighting remains in the hills and mountains, we fought on an equal footing. When the skirmishes descended into the caves and in the darkness, then we find ourselves, as it were, out of our depths and in over our heads. I shall not forget the mirrored surface of the underground lake, nor the thing that emerged from the lake, its eyes opening and closing and the singing whispers that accompanied it as it rose, wreathing their way about it like the buzz of flies, bigger than worlds. That I survived was a miracle, but survive I did, and I returned to England with my nerves in shreds and tatters. The place that leech-like mouth had touched me was tattooed forever, frog-white, onto the skin of my now withered shoulder. I had once been a crack shot, now I had nothing, save a fear of the world beneath the world, akin to panic. I scream in the night, he confesses to his new roommate. I have been told that I snore. Also, I keep irregular hours, and I often use the mantelpiece for target practice. I will need the sitting room to meet clients. I am selfish, private, and easily bored. Will this be a problem? 
They shake hands and agree that it certainly will not. Yep, so they get rooms together in Baker Street. Our narrator describes the weird people who would come in and consult with the detective from time to time. And then one day as they're having breakfast, the detective correctly guesses that they are about to have a visitor. We will need another place at the table. Very good. I'll put more sausages under the grill. The detective explains that he heard the coach slow down in front of their place and then go on to the next corner, meaning somebody wanted to see them but uh, didn't want to be seen, so they're disembarking away from the apartment. And up comes Inspector Lestrade, Holmes's usual police contact. Come in, Lestrade. The door is ajar, and your sausages are just coming out from the grill. I should not. Truth to tell, I have not had a chance to break my fast this morning, and I could certainly do justice to a few of those sausages. Now, the detective correctly guesses that this is a matter of national importance, which Lestrade is very distraught about. That means that he's heard about it when it's supposed to be a secret. But the detective simply explains that if a Scotland Yard inspector needed to see them without breakfast and needed not to be seen coming into their place, it must be a matter of national importance. Yeah, and it's at this point that despite avowing to be <laughs> very jealous of his privacy, the detective decides to read his new roommate, the army veteran, into the case. Right. Two heads are better than one, and what is said to one of us is said to both. So, Lestrade takes them to the scene of a crime in Shoreditch, and en route, the detective describes his business to the veteran. I am a consulting detective, the only one in London or perhaps the world. I do not take cases. Instead, I consult. Others bring me their insoluble problems, they describe them, and sometimes I solve them. Then those people who come to you are in the main police officers or detectives themselves, yes. Yes, he also has a feeling that the veteran is meant to work with him. I have a feeling that we were meant to be together, that we have fought the good fight side by side, in the past or in the future, I do not know. That's cute. Chapter 2. The Room You're tearing me apart, Lisa! So as they enter the apartment in Shoreditch, they are greeted by Mark. <laughs> oh, hi, doggy. You've shaved recently, I see. They're at this cheap boarding house in Shoreditch. They are let in, and words cannot describe the horror that the veteran sees inside. What I saw instead was what had sprayed and gushed from the throat and chest of the victim. In color, it ranged from bile green to grass green. It had soaked into the threadbare carpet and spattered the wallpaper. I imagined it for one moment, the work of some hellish artist, who had decided to create a study in emerald. The study in emerald is, of course, a reference to a study in Scarlet, one of the Sherlock Holmes novels. Yeah, but this blood is green, which reminds us yet again that we are sharing this Victorian London detective story with the creatures of H.P. Lovecraft. So they examine the scene, there's messes of green blood about, and written in it is a word. Rach? I thought it was Rach, and I wondered what kind of ghoul could do something like this. Oh god, oh, that joke. That just... <laughs> We're done for the week, folks. I promised you terror, not disgust. Lestrade suspects that the killer was a Rachel, and the victim died before finishing writing it. But the detective corrects him. The word was not written by His Royal Highness. My dear Lestrade, please give me some credit for having a brain. The corpse is obviously not that of a man. The color of his blood, the number of limbs, the eyes, the position of the face, all these things bespeak the blood royal. And there is the big reveal. 
that the blood royal is to say the blood of horrific creatures from beyond the abyss. From Rilia and Carcosa. You know Carcosa? This, Lestrade confirms, is Prince Franz Drago of Bohemia, a minor prince of Germany. I note that him being a prince of Bohemia is another Holmes reference. A scandal in Bohemia. Right. We find out that he is here for a holiday and a change of air. For the theaters, the whores, and the gaming tables, you mean. Lestrade seems confident that they'll track down this Rachel and solve the case. The detective, of course, knows better. He uh, complains that the police have muddied up the footprints with their own boots. And he also collects some evidence from the ash in the fireplace. Her Majesty's police tend not to be excited by ash in a fireplace. It's where ash tends to be found. As they're leaving, the detective tells Lestrade that he's unlikely to find Rachel. It's actually a German word, Rache. It means revenge. Check your dictionary. There are other meanings. He goes on to ask his friend if he's ever seen royalty, intimating that he's probably likely to see it alive by the end of the case. Or indeed by the end of the day. Chapter 3. The Palace. So yes, they accept an invitation to the palace. Queen's consort, Prince Albert, was a big man with an impressive handlebar mustache and a receding hairline, and he was undeniably and entirely human. The Queen is most upset. He had an accent. He pronounced his S's as Z's. Most upset. The Queen is most upset. The detective promises Prince Albert that he will find the killer. It turns out it was Albert who's something of a fan, and that's how they got hired. And now they go in to see the Queen of England. She was called Victoria because she had beaten us in battle 700 years before. And she was called Gloriana because she was glorious. And she was called the Queen because the human mouth was not shaped to say her true name. Victoria, of course, would be the English Queen at this time. Gloriana is an old nickname for Elizabeth I, from Edmund Spencer, if I'm not mistaken. This must be solved, comes the voice from the Queen. She also pronounces her S's as Z's. Too right. Now... Let's talk about the Queen here, because this is some weird shit. She is a tentaculous hellbeast who wears an ivory mask to appear more or less human. Yeah, this sort of big bulky form with a mask that looks like a human queen and a crown under a cloak, but coming out of the bottom of the cloak are these tentacles. She also, I think we will see, has... A sharp fanged mouth underneath the mask. This is a pretty good creature design. This is pretty creepy. And she also meets Sounds like them the in... sort of thing that would attack Doctor Strange. <laughs> yeah. Meets them in a, uh, in a darkened room. I have to say, this is sort of one area where I prefer the prose, because in this story, we can simply be given the subtle impression that what they're dealing with is not human, and there's no description. We can imagine our own horror there. Yeah, I think that Albuquerque does a good job, though, of... He, he makes up for taking that opportunity from us by creating a sort of memorable image here. The Crown Prince, it's worth noting, we did not see. Although I believe we will later on when the case is solved. Momentarily. The Queen recognizes that the veteran is a valued companion of the detective and gives him a sort of gift, placing one of her tendrils on his shoulder, his wounded shoulder. There was a moment, but only a moment, of pain deeper and more profound than anything I have ever experienced, and then it was replaced by a pervasive sense of well-being. For the first time since Afghanistan, I was free from pain. 
Pictured I a bearded man, perhaps back from Afghanistan. <laughs> or since they're British, I suppose I should say Afghanistan. Afghanistan. She whispers some arcane words from beyond the boundaries of nightmare into the detective's ear. He replies, certainly, ma'am. <laughs> and he reveals, I think for the first time, there were two other men with your nephew in that room in Shoreditch that night. The footprints, although obscured, were unmistakable. So we're looking for two suspects. So they ride back to Baker Street, and before going to bed, the veteran strips his shirt off and sees that the frog-white skin of his wounded shoulder is beginning to turn pink again. Chapter 4. The Performance. So over the next ten days, the detective comes in and out of the apartment in a wide variety of disguises, apparently investigating the case as a number of different characters. And then, sort of out of nowhere, he just asks, Are you interested in theater? Yeah, and they go to the theater show that we saw an ad for on the first page. Yeah, the Strand Players, Strand Magazine being the magazine that Sherlock Holmes was in. Sorry, I'm like this all the time. <laughs> you wish you were like this all the time. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's three one-act plays. And it's apparently in a bad neighborhood, although the clothes that we see in the lobby are pretty nice. Well, yeah, it's in a dangerous neighborhood. But we find out that the prince came to this theater as well. So Right. Out know, of all it's... the places he visited, this is the only place he visited more than once. Yes. So while it is in a dangerous neighborhood, the neighborhood is not exclusive to the unwashed, mm. as it were. You should only count yourself lucky that you did not need to accompany me to the gambling dens or the brothels, or the madhouses, another place that Prince Franz delighted in visiting, as I've learned. The show starts, and the veteran is delighted by the show. Yeah, I love, we get three panels here. The first act is a comedy, the second act is a tragedy, mm -hmm. and the third act is a historical epic. And we see that the Major's face changes appropriately. In the first panel, he's laughing. In the second panel, he's holding back tears. And in the third panel, he's sort of in awe. In all three panels, the detective's face remains the same. If anything, just growing slightly more intense. Right, just intently calm. Not so much engaged in the show. The third show, as you said, is a historical epic. It takes place 700 years ago and is entitled The Great Old Ones Come. This is sort of the first time we get the full explanation of what happened. So our characters see the Great Old Ones rising from the sea. There is one young man who is apparently a fan. The Old Ones, as foretold, returning to us from Rilia, and from Dimkarkosa, and from the plains of Leng, where they have slept or waited or passed out the time of their death. The village priest is not happy to hear this. Those shapes coming from the sea are monsters and demons. They must be destroyed. At the climax, the hero beat the priest to death with his own crucifix, and prepared to welcome them as they come. And this is a moment that I think is really cool in the prose story, because he says that the priest was beaten to death with his own crucifer, and that is the first hint that we have that, apparently, Christianity is defeated and gone in this world. Mm. So the Great Old Ones rise, and there's a really cool theatrical effect. I should say, it's a really cool piece of theater in comic book. They do it with shadow puppetry. Right, they use shadow puppets to convey... The Queen of Albion herself, and the ancient goat parent to a thousand emperor of all China, 
and the Tsar unanswerable, and he who presides over the new world, and the White Lady of the Antarctic Fastness, and the others. The moon rose in the painted sky, and then, at its height, in one final moment of the theatrical magic, it turned from a pallid yellow, as it was in the old tales, to the comforting crimson of the moon that shines down upon all of us today. Ooh. I wondered if the White Lady of Antarctica might be Jadis the White Witch from Narnia, although he would probably have pointed out if she looked mostly human. It could also be a reference to Poe. Oh, is that uh, Arthur Gordon Pym? Yeah. Right, yeah. That's a good call. Stout fellow, whispers the detective as they are plotting. Let us go backstage. Might I talk to Mr. Vernet? Right, so the lead actor in the show is Sherry Vernet, or Vernet, comes out and talks to them. The detective introduces himself as Henry Camberley and says that he is a theatrical promoter. Well, my good man, that last play, I've never seen anything like it. Did you write it? The actor replies, Alas, no. The playwright is a good friend of mine, although I devised the mechanism of the Magic Lantern show. You'll not see finer on the stage today. Would you give me the playwright's name? Perhaps I should speak to him directly, this friend of yours. That would not be possible, I'm afraid. He is a professional man and does not wish his connection with the stage publicly to be known. At this point, the detective pulls a pipe from his pocket, but says he has forgotten to bring his tobacco, so he would like to borrow some from the actor. I smoke a strong black shag, but if you have no objection... None! Why, I smoke a strong shag myself. In the guise of Camberley, the detective offers to promote further touring of their show, especially The Great Old Ones Come. He wants them to write two more acts, beginning with that show and continuing on to the present day, a full history of The Great Old Ones, and they can tour in the new world. But I can guarantee you audiences beyond your imaginings, and a significant share of the takings at the door, let us say 50%. Come to my rooms in Baker Street tomorrow morning, after breakfast time, say at ten, in company with your author friend, and I shall have the contracts drawn up and waiting. Vernet makes an announcement to the entire assembled cast and crew. This gentleman is Henry Camberley, the theatrical promoter, and he is proposing to take us across the Atlantic Ocean and on to fame and fortune. Hooray! As they exit, the veteran starts to talk about the case, but the detective shushes him. Not another word. There are many ears in the city. They board a cab. That's the tall man found, or I'm a Dutchman. Now we just have to hope that the cupidity and curiosity of the limping doctor proves enough to bring him to us tomorrow morning. The limping doctor? That is what I have been calling him. It was obvious from the footprints and much else besides when we saw the prince's body that two men had been in the room that night. A tall man, who unless I miss my guess we have just encountered, and a smaller man with a limp, who eviscerated the prince with a professional skill that betrays the medical man. And here's a line that I like. I hate to say this, but it is my experience that when a doctor goes to the bad, he is a fouler and darker creature than the worst cutthroat. <laughs> yes, quite. <laughs> the cabbie acts a little shady. Oh yeah, he ignores a fare as he rolls off. I dreamt of shadows that night, vast shadows that blotted out the sun, and I called out to them in my desperation, but they did not listen. Chapter 5. The Skin and the Pit. So they are setting a trap at Baker Street the following morning for the tall man and the limping doctor. Lestrade is there, along with the detective and the veteran. They are not to arrest anyone who comes in, just people who try to leave. And this is where the detective begins the sum up. Tell me, my dear friend, what do you know of the Restorationists? Not a blessed thing, Lestrade interjects. If you're talking about what I think you're talking about, perhaps we should leave it there. Enough's enough. So the Restorationists, it turns out, are people who do not believe the coming of the Great Old Ones was the fine thing we all know it to be. 
uh, they would see mankind restored to control of its own destiny. Anarchists to a man. Lestrade grows increasingly angry as this conversation continues. I will not hear this sedition spoken. I must warn you. I must warn you not to be such a fathead. <laughs> because it was the Restorationists who killed Prince Franz Draco. They murder, they kill, in a vain effort to force our masters to leave us alone in the darkness. He goes on to explain the meaning of Raka. It means a hunting dog as well as revenge. The hunter left his signature on the wallpaper in the murder room, just as an artist might sign a canvas. But he was not the one who killed the prince. The limping doctor? Very good. So he knows that there was a tall man there, because Raka was written at his eye level, the detective also being quite tall, and that someone had tapped out a pipe on the mantelpiece, which is something that a short person could not do. Could, but wouldn't. Right. It wouldn't be at the right level. It wouldn't be convenient. Yeah. There were also footprints behind the door and by the window of a smaller man who put weight on his right leg, the limping doctor. The tall man, he says he knows from the footprints, accompanied the prince into the rooms, and the doctor was waiting there. One thing I note about this sum-up scene, there's no aspect shots of the clues as he discovered them, and there weren't really when he was investigating either. That's maybe a bit of a cliché, but it's a cool way of using the comics medium. Yeah, it's a nice cliché. It's classic for a reason. Yeah. Furthermore, investigating the prince's activities in Bohemia, he learned that an English theatrical troupe had been there at the same time he had. Had before, before Prince Franz Rego, in fact. Good lord, so that Sherry Vanet fellow is a restorationist. Exactly. Now at this point there comes a knock at the door. That would be our quarry. Careful now. But it's not their quarry. It's a little boy with a message for them. Please, sirs, my name is Wiggins. Is there a Mr. Henry Camberley here? I was asked by a gentleman to deliver a note. So now we launch into the note from Sherry Vernet, uh, which admits right off the bat that he is not Sherry Vernet and he is not speaking to Henry Camberley because those are made-up names. And here's where we get a pretty big, if pretty subtle, reveal. I have read a number of your papers when I have been able to obtain them. Indeed, I even corresponded with you quite profitably two years ago about certain theoretical anomalies in your paper on the dynamics of an asteroid. What does that mean? So, Dynamics of an Asteroid is famously a paper written by the professor of mathematics, James Moriarty. Ah. The detective has been Moriarty the whole time! Yes, as will become clearer. Sherry goes on to point out that it's exceedingly unlikely that an actual smoker would bring a clean, brand-new pipe and forget his tobacco. Furthermore, he points out that while the streets of London have ears, so too do cab drivers. See, this actually struck me as... I couldn't believe the detective's carelessness. That part in particular? Yeah. Yeah. At discussing it in front of the cab driver. And not seeming particularly distraught when he had reason to believe the cab driver was acting suspiciously after that. He confirms that it was he who lured the prince back to the room in Shoreditch. And here we learn the lure that he used. If it is any comfort to you, having learned a little of his recreational predilections, I had told him I had procured for him a girl, abducted from a convent in Cornwall, where she had never seen a man, and that it would only take his touch and the sight of his face to tip her over into a perfect madness. Had she existed, he would have feasted on her madness while he took her, like a man sucking the flesh from a ripe peach, leaving behind nothing but the skin and the pit. I have seen them do far worse, and it is not the price we pay for peace and prosperity. It is too great a price for that. 
Oh, call out that shot of the limping doctor waiting, lit only by the moonlit window. That's pretty cool. He also mentions in the letter that the doctor really is a writer. He has some crowd-pleasing talent. I fear the Strand players will need to find themselves a new leading man. I will not sign myself, Vernet, and until the hunt is done and the world restored, I beg you to think of me simply as... Raish. The detective asks the boy to confirm the description of the man, which indeed matches the description of the actor, Vernet. The police run off to catch him. They're going to stop all the trains and stop all the ships. Yeah, but the detective is certain that this will not work. He imagines that the killers are within a mile or two. They'll simply lay low until the fervor has died down and then leave. He says this is what he would do were the positions reversed. And we get cool art here of the detective looking out the window and Vernet looking back at him as his reflection. Yeah, that's pretty cool. The detective advises his friend to burn the letter. It's seditionary nonsense. But he doesn't. Shouldn't that word be seditious, not seditionary? Mmm, valid point. So despite being unable to catch the perpetrators, the royals are quite pleased with their efforts in the case. They receive a lot of praise. As well, the veteran's shoulder continues to heal, and soon he'll be a crack shot again. But he never destroys the note. It keeps lingering in his brain, and instead he reproduces it, and leaves it in a bank box with instructions that it not be released until everyone involved is long dead. He mentions here that the limping doctor has been tentatively identified as a military surgeon named John or perhaps James Watson. And as he closes out his writing, he signs S.M. Major Sebastian Moran, the Army Sniper, Moriarty's right-hand man! <laughs> Right, so the detective and the veteran were actually Moriarty and Moran all along, and the crooks that they were chasing were Holmes and Watson all along. Yeah. Which, you know, that means that, after all, Holmes and Watson are on the right side. Right, the great old ones, maybe not so great, after all. Yeah. Anyway, I think that's a really cool story. It's very effectively creepy, and it effectively conveys a sense of a London that, a world in which the Great Old Ones conquered it and it's still kind of, life still kind of goes on, although changed in many small ways that we notice. Yeah. It is very, Gaiman is obviously very knowledgeable about Sherlock Holmes trivia, and to some extent the story comes off as showing that off. Almost to the point where the big reveal is concealed amongst trivia so well that you might miss it. If not for the line about the Doctor being James Watson, yeah, that's the most obvious bit. The John or James line is another Holmes trivia reference. He's referred to like once as James, and it's... People wonder if that's either an error or if James is like his middle name or something. Right. All in all, a pretty nice little graphic novel here. Let's talk about the art a little bit before we go on. Uh, so I love Raphael Albuquerque art, and I think that what he does here is so cool because... He manages to keep that moodiness that so much of the art we've seen recently and talked about recently on this podcast is going for, but he achieves a much greater clarity of images. Yeah, absolutely. This is really clean, really clear. I think it's very cool comic art. Yeah, it makes me want to 
start reading uh, American Vampire again. Yeah. I also think he's done a pretty terrific job with the character designs, particularly in that he needs to be able to sell the two main characters as both Holmes and Watson and Moriarty and Moran. Right. Yeah, and I loved Burnett's design, who turns out to be Holmes. Yeah. That was pretty great, too. One thing, and I don't want to dwell on it, but it probably is worth mentioning, there are a couple of grammatical and spelling mistakes in this printing. Drago is referred to as Draco once... Oh, he's referred to as Drago all the other times? Yeah. I thought his name was Draco. I never noticed that it was ever put as Drago. So, just putting it out there, slight uh, slight flaws mar the surface. So would you recommend people buy these graphic novels? In addition to or in lieu of buying the prose stories? <laughs> I would definitely recommend A Study in Emerald mm-hmm. for fans of this kind of stuff. That's a nice, That's a nice little graphic novel. Yeah, these are these are both really nice artifacts, nice hardcovers. Forbidden Brides, I think, you know, it's just too short and I don't love the art. Okay. Yeah. But Study in Emerald, definitely good comics. But Study, yeah, Study in Emerald gets gets a five-star review. Nice. Well, then the Halloween surprise worked out. Yes, indeed. So there we go. Two Scary Stories by Neil Gaiman from Dark Horse Comics. Happy Halloween. It's a chiller. <laughs> All right, we will be back to our regularly scheduled programming with Hellblazer next time for John Constantine's Finest Hour. And in two, we're launching a new series with Transmetropolitan Number 1. Yeah! Vertiguise is written and hosted by me and Eric. I produce the show Eric Handles Social Media, and our theme music is by Kelly Joyce Fielder. If you like our show, you should check out our website, vertiguise.blueberry.com. That's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y. We've got lots more episodes, plus show notes on every episode. Yeah, we covered the entirety of Sandman and Preacher before this, so check it out. If you want to get in touch with us, you can send us an email, vertiguise at gmail.com. You can reach me on Twitter, at vertiguise. You can reach me at blankcastsean. We have a Facebook page, facebook.com slash vertiguise. If you're listening to us on the Apple Podcast app or any other app, you could leave us a positive rating or review. We always appreciate it, and it helps people to find the show. But as always, thanks for listening. Thanks, everybody. Reviews are mixed on Joker. It seems to be a love-it-or-hate-it kind of movie. Some people think it was very good. Some people think that the movie itself is crap. Everybody seems to agree Joaquin Phoenix is good. Yeah, I I guess I didn't love it or hate it. Okay. I just think that, like, it's an engaging enough watch, but kind of dumb. And it's a movie that, like... You walk out of the theater and you spend the rest of the afternoon thinking about it and you just think of more and more reasons that didn't occur to you while you were watching it why it's dumb. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, you, you sent me a text and you gave it the Immortan Joe review. What's that? Mediocre! Mediocre! Yeah.